Welcome to two. Whoop, I already fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, leave it in. I want that to be the new intro. <laughs> Two-wee movies, like. <laughs> We're professional. Oh, my God. All right. All right. Welcome to Do We Like Movies. I'm your host, Angel. I'm your host, Tommy. And, oh, my God, did I just fuck up the intro? <laughs> oh, it's fine. We've only been doing this shit for, like, almost two years. <laughs> And uh, this week, we're talking about Rosemary's Baby from 1968, a movie directed by Roman Polanski, who, uh. <laughs> who uh, I guess our only other uh, Roman Polanski movie in this, which wasn't even a movie he directed, but he was a character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That and is such a weird six degrees that Roman Polanski was like... He wasn't even a main character. He was like a side character in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Well, given the stuff that he's done in real life, why would you want to spend much time with him at all? (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of a raging, giant, raging piece of shit. (laughs) Which, you know, is pretty apt when we're talking about this movie because this movie is filled with a bunch of giant pieces of shit. (laughs) I mean... For real, honestly, you can just fucking spit in any direction without hitting, like, 12 pieces of shit in this movie. I'm pretty sure that this is the oldest movie that we've ever reviewed uh, from 1968. Because we ha- this was the same year that Night of the Living Dead came out. Oh, so, yeah. uh, I feel like, you know, we talked about it in our last several elevated horror movies. About how, you know, this isn't something that's been brand new. And I do think that Night of the Living Dead and Rosemary's Baby are, they really are two of the precursors to this new subgenre that everyone wants to live in. And I wanted to do this movie as a companion piece to Hereditary just because when we watched Hereditary, I just got so many like callbacks to the last time I had watched Rosemary's Baby. And I think because I paid so such close attention to that movie, it caused me to pay closer attention to this movie than I ever had before. And so it was almost like you watched this movie for the first time all over again. It's more like you know when we did Five Hundred Days of Summer last summer, mm-hmm. and and we talked about how when you watch when I watched the movie as a young twenty something, it was a lot different than when I watched it as, an, as like you know a 30-year-old man who's married and has a family, I yes. got the same kind of thoughts watching this movie for this episode. I guess the best way to start on this is, uh, what's your experience with Rosemary's Baby? Uh, I'll keep it short and simple. My experience was that you were like, hey, you should watch this movie. And I was like, hey, all right. <laughs> is this, like, your, I, this is your first time? No, I, I did watch it. This was years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, because you were telling me, hey, you should watch it. I, it was a movie I never could actually sit through the entire time, because I mean, to be fair, this is a very dry movie. It and... is a tough watch. You know what it feels like specifically, um, like in the style and tone, and like just what the scenery looks like, and it feels like one of those nineteen sixties Doris Day Rock Hudson. Or like Breakfast at Tiffany's, like it's it it is that era of film. Which oh, definitely. Which if I feel like the only people that really go back to that now are 
film school like douchebags like me who <laughs> I didn't even go to film school but I went through that period of time where all I wanted to watch was you know cinema and uh and I feel like those are the only that and Quentin Tarantino are the only people that go back to watch these movies I can just imagine you wearing like spectacles and a beret and just being like <laughs> oh this is also you know what though? gauche and pedant this movie this movie does uh this movie did have an influence on one of the movies that I've loved in the last decade. This the, is the end. No. <laughs> oh, no. okay. Because there is a scene that is... Who was it? I think Jonah Hill gets fucked by a demon and they, they <laughs> reenact the, 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 the demon rape scene from uh, Rosemary's <laughs> Baby. No, uh, it's actually Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele uh, credits this movie as one of the influences that he had in Get Out. And I absolutely see that because one of the things about this movie is just the fear of being in a room full of old white people that want to do you harm. (laughs) Ah, yes, all of our fears. (laughs) No, I mean, like, let's let's be clear. There is a specific, when you're a non-white person, you do have fears of being in spaces with people who don't look like you and who you're not sure whether or not they have your best interests at heart. No, totally. Like I, I didn't mean that as like sarcastically. The, the danger, the danger of strangers, right? Like, mm-hmm. and in just in other things. I think once we get into the movie, I'll probably provide a lot more context so that people just don't think I'm a raging racist <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Not all the time, but yeah, dude. My 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 experience with this film is very like it's very short and sweet. I remember seeing the, you know, back when Blockbuster was a thing. I remember seeing it, but. But remember, we mentioned this earlier. I had I've had so many people in my life that have been so, especially us Latinos. We are a very superstitious bunch, <laughs> and it was like I had so many people in my life that anything involving Satanism, anything involving witchcraft, anything involving like demon demonic possession, it is so like get that away from me. That as a kid, it took me forever. Like I remember walking by in Blockbuster and seeing like the 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 box for Rosemary's Baby, and be like, oh, "No, no, El Cucuy is coming after me." <laughs> you know, like it was just it was just like this weird visceral reaction. It wasn't until I was an adult where I watched it. Well, as an adult, I'm 29 now. Holy shit! But like you know, I think I watched it when I was like 23, 24, and I was like, "Man, this is this is definitely a 60s movie." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it was just some it was just something I had to sit through until again, just like hereditary, until maybe the last twenty minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah. And and for me, like, you know, I think the one thing I didn't share about my experience with this is I, I saw this as a young per, as a young kid first. Um and this is probably only the third time, I think. Well, I watched it twice for this podcast, but uh I think I've only seen it like I could count it on on one hand the amount of times that I've watched this entire movie from start to finish. And um, the first time I watched it, I was a kid, um, and before I'd even seen it, uh, I just had one of my cousins describe the ending of the movie to me. So before I like came into it, I you know they described oh well you know at the end of the movie they're they're in this nursery and and it's this like devil baby that's in a crib. 
that's all like black and it has the upside down cross and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, huh? Like in my mind, I think I imagined something so much more gruesome and terrifying than what I actually end up watching in this film. I was expecting like a goat baby. (laughs) I really wanted a goat baby. Um, but you know, that, that was my experience the first time. Um, my experience the second time was I really loved this as a horror movie and it always felt just, it felt different, right? It's not the exorcist. Uh, but what it has in common is that it, it, it tells you what's happening, not in the like foreground, you know, there's a lot of background stuff that's happening. And I feel like there's stuff that is directly like, that the exorcist directly references in some way like the film um mm-hmm. this movie was directed but we already said it was directed by roman polanski uh but the producer of this film was a guy named william castle and william castle is famous for a bunch of schlocky horror movies from the <laughs> 50s and 60s <laughs> fuck yeah baby also um, known as the hobby movies yeah, no, and, and I think what we talked about elevated horror, you know, it, it, what we talked about is like, you know, it's a genre, there's a genre here that doesn't get much respect. It's considered something that's kind of exploitative and, uh, you know, not really award worthy. And then all of a sudden you get a studio like Blumhouse or a producer like Jason Blum who comes around and he brings in directors who don't normally do horror films and he creates these kind of high art you know, or high concept horror movies. And that's essentially what happened here uh, with them getting Roman Polanski. I think at one point, William Castle wanted to direct the film himself. And I think the fear about that was that people (laughs) probably weren't going to take it seriously. There was going to be too much Vincent Price in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. And you know what? I feel like, I feel like it's depiction of, Satan in Rosemary's Dream is kind of a schlocky, like, goofy William <laughs> Castle movie thing when you look at Shut it. Shut up! Now. That was my favorite part. No, I don't think it's bad. I, I mean, I, I think it's. I think people probably thought it was scarier than than you would ever think it is now. But oh yeah, you know. definitely. Like, I can imagine people in the '60s being like, "Oh dear Lord!" And then meanwhile, I'm over here like, "Yes, praise Satan." <laughs> Um, this movie, though it was made in 1968, it takes place in 1965. Anton LaVey, mm-hmm. he started he started the Church of Satan in 1965. Much like last week's movie, we are watching a movie where, I guess the difference is in last week's movie, it was an entire family that was essentially the marionette puppets of this evil cult. In this movie, it's even more horrifying because everyone like all the cultists are basically controlling one person mm-hmm. <laughs> and oh, uh, yeah the other thing is this movie takes place in a hotel called I mean in a apartment building called the Bram or the Brampton Bramford the Bramford thank you mm-hmm. and well in real life this place is actually called the Dakota and it's famous because a lot of celebrities would live there there's two things that the Dakota is mainly known for. One of them is the location of Rosemary's baby. And the other one is because it's where John Lennon lived and he got shot and killed outside. uh, I'm like, why do I know the Dakota? I think a few years after this movie comes out and uh, Roman Polanski becomes famous as we've seen in, well, in once upon a time in Hollywood, they do a really crazy, you know, uh, 
we're changing the timeline of things that actually happen. But the horrifying thing that happens to Roman Polanski is his wife, Sharon Tate, is murdered by the Manson family while she's pregnant. And uh, I think specifically because of his involvement with this movie, uh, one the Manson family members that go into Sharon Tate's home actually identify themselves as the devil. Creepy, like, you know, real life stuff that comes with this as well. And I think it's one of those movies that people consider a cursed movie. Do I think it's a cursed movie? No, not really. I do think that it's a bunch of creepy coincidences, but I'm less superstitious than I was when I was younger. But I do think that those are interesting things to think about and give the movie a bit of a darker mystique when you're watching it. Oh yeah, it makes it a lot more interesting to watch when you have that when you yeah, like you said when you have that lore to go along with it, right? Like it's like how how people not only was the exorcist a horrifying movie, but then you find out all the things that went on behind the scenes, all the creepy shit that went on. It just it elevates it not just from a very good film to like just something that's a work of almost like paranormal like filmmaking right like it it presents something in such a real way you know to Mm. where there's nothing that overtly there's nothing that happens that's overtly supernatural i think the whole way through before we even get into the actual movie this is how much of a deep dive i did into the content of of this week's movie i actually went on zillow (laughs) and found out what it would cost if you actually wanted to uh, purchase one of the units in the dakota and you can have a three-bedroom home for the low, low price of $6 million. Oh, is that it? <laughs> oh, lovely. Let me uh, just go into my offshore bank accounts and easily <laughs> pay for that with all the money we make as podcasters. Well, when I saw the units, uh, like, you know, when I was looking at the inside of the units that are for sale, I was a little disappointed that it looked different from the sets in this movie. And Fuck that! I would much <laughs> rather not want to live on the set in this movie. Well, and the reason for that is apparently because there are famous people that did live in the Dakota. They did not actually shoot inside the building. They cre- they recreated the inside of the Dakota in sets. So. Pussies. <laughs> there I is also, another there is another movie that this reminds me of as well, and I think it this from the 70s, and it's another one of, like, these like weird conspiracy everyone's out to get you movies it's called the sentinel and yes uh, i remember that one and uh it's one of the early movies of our friend jeff goldblum who i just love and that's why i refer to him as my friend even though i don't know him at all (laughs) if we say it's called magical thinking if we say it enough (laughs) it will come true but yeah, it's the same thing. It's like a young woman who's living in a very creepy apartment that's inhabited by eccentric guests uh, that live there, eccentric neighbors that live there with her. So um, from the very beginning, uh, they so the movie kicks off with Rosemary and her husband, Guy. So Rosemary and Guy Woodhouse are the name of this couple. Uh, Guy is, I guess, a struggling actor. He's done a few plays that no one's really heard of, but most of the work that he does is in commercials. And I was thinking with the cost of real estate inside the Dakota, there is just no way in hell that a single income family with like one guy who does commercial work would be able to afford a unit there. (laughs) And I'm just like, that doesn't make any sense, but you know, I have to suspend my disbelief with that. (laughs) We got to remember sixties, New York is completely different. 
and he was probably in a he was probably they probably took actual like care of those in the arts and they actually like cared about the arts back then <laughs> as opposed to now where you're a commercial actor like you're just that's just like not only bottom of the rung but it's like fuck you're you're just like you're just struggling and that's like where it gets into the real nitty gritty of trying to make it in Hollywood, you know? Yeah. Well, you know what kind of made sense to me this time? And I actually didn't catch it until, you know, the last couple times that I watched it um, is that there's a reason why they're able to afford it. And even though it is expensive, uh, the, the landlord, I believe uh, who's walking them around the apartment, Mm-hmm. Um, he makes mention about how they, they haven't been able to raise the rent on that place. Yeah, and I think they do they do make a, they do point that out. Which gives me the suspicion that maybe all of this may have been set into motion before these people even got there. Who knows? Oh yeah. It was like, all a ruse, you big dumb idiot. <laughs> like I don't even know. But there's a lot of really good like much like hereditary there's so much good story building that takes place here you see how creepy this place was you see that the woman who used to live here was some very old you know uh i guess uh lawyer in new york city who had like these strange like herbs and like basically like a spice garden in her in in one of the rooms in her house um it, the her rooms are dark everything's got like bookcases and stuff and it just it looks like a really it looks like the west wing from beauty and the beast <laughs> like where you would expect the beast to just come out of any corner of the wall but it, it's sconces i don't even know what a sconce is but i'm pretty sure they have it you know <laughs> um and but for some reason they actually like it and and they decide this is the place where they want to live which okay whatever um more power to you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and you find out that, you know, it's a little bit more expensive, but they're going to go ahead and try to get out of the lease of the place that they're living in just so they can move into the, the Bramford. Um, and we end up cutting to, I guess, their old landlord who they're who they also friends? friends with. Yeah. Yeah. So I've never rented outside uh, to, to, you know, I've never given money to a filthy landlords. <laughs> but it's like, uh, I, my understanding is tenants aren't usually supposed to be friendly with their landlords. So that's already <laughs> kind of super weird. But I mean, my dad was my landlord once, and I was friendly with him. <laughs> I would hope so. Super <laughs> awkward. Here's your rent, old man. Fucking chucks like banana peels at him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, it's, um, it's 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 one of those right. That's his name. Yeah, Hutch. And I, it, you know, again, it's it's one of those things that doesn't really make sense, but I just go along with it because I have to go with whatever this movie's setting up. But, but you know what? Hutch is actually very likable. Like he yes. actually does take a very uh he, he takes a very active like role in uh in Rose and uh in Rose and Guy's life. And he like actually cares about them and he was actually like he knows that they wanted to go to the Bramford, so it's like he 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 begrudgingly gives them a really amazing referral. I like that little joke where he's like, I should have told them that you guys were drug addicts <laughs> and never pay rent on time. He goes, just so I can keep you around. No, and, and I feel, you get the feeling that he cares about them because Rose Rosemary 
well, I don't know about Guy's family at all, but it, but Rosemary does mention that her family lives very far away from them. Um, they do, I guess, have friends in the city, but yeah, it just it, it feels like someone who's a bit of a surrogate parent uh, to to them. So, thanks, and, and landlord kinda, dad. And it sets up maybe the the it, it maybe sets up the idea that they have a habit of getting too close to their neighbors. Mm-hmm. So Guy and Rosemary, uh, they go over to to Hutch's house. I guess he does like a dinner for him. Mm-hmm. And when they tell him the news that they got the place at the Branford, he gives them a warning about how the Branford has a mysterious history and a dark past that had to do with witchcraft and murder. Murder most foul. Most foul, whatever the word is. Yeah, you you find out that there's like weird stuff that happened in this place. Like there was a set of twins that lived there who apparently would eat kids um, (laughs) in like the mid 1800s. And then like towards the end of the 1800s or the turn of the century, um, there was was like a man witch. Yeah, there was a a man witch. (laughs) Yeah, there was a man witch named Adrian Mercado. Who I guess is like this movie's version of Anton LaVey. <laughs> Even looks a little bit like Anton LaVey if you no, see a picture I, of him. I think it's absolutely like intentional the way that they make him look. He looks like Anton LaVey with a widow's peak. And I'm like, man, somehow real Anton LaVey looks way cooler. Yeah, Adrian Mercado, Mercado looks like uh, if Anton LaVey was like spliced with the grandpa from the Munsters. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> like Anton LaVey with like fucking 50 pounds more. But anyway, after this conversation, we like end up cutting to sometime later where they actually end up moving into this place. Their first night there, they're eating takeout on the floor. And uh, out of nowhere, Rosemary just like tells him, let's make love on the floor. <laughs> which, which, all right. I mean... I can't imagine it's very comfortable, but whatever. Let me know. <laughs> Fucking rolls around in Chinese takeout boxes. <laughs> that sounds so unpleasant. It sounds gross, I know. <laughs> but and while they're like kind of you know, getting in the mood, you start hearing like, you know, noises and chatter coming from the other room, uh, from the other apartment. Which, you know, they mentioned when they're touring the apartments in the beginning that this that this seventh floor had like a giant, like kind of like, you know, like this giant unit Mm -hmm. that has apparently been split into four different units. Yeah. I'll split you with my unit. (laughs) So instead of like having actual like thick walls, there's like more like partitions that are between these places. Yeah. So they can hear everything the other one's saying in the other apartment, which you know what, as somebody who lives in a condominium now and once lived in a studio with like two businesses and like people who were upstairs and stuff like that, like it is very common to live. Don't forget the boxing gym. Yeah. That, was, that you shared a wall with and yes. we were trying to watch shit and you just hear boom, 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 boom. Yeah, that's right. I lived right next door to a boxing gym. So anytime, anytime that it was like four or five in the afternoon when the classes were happening, you would hear like the sounds of people hitting the bag and then you would also hear that alarm that goes off like after you're done doing your... 
Yeah. And then this you just was... hear me over there telling everyone to go hit the showers every five minutes. So this definitely takes me back to those kinds of days. But um, I feel like from here, you, you kind of go through this. Um... It's like get well, to know everybody, right? Yes. Because uh, the. It, they give everyone a bit of the spotlight. All the, all the, it's like meet all the kooky characters that live in the Brantford. Yeah. Well, the first one that you meet actually ends up being uh, Teresa, whatever her last name was, who is Gionofria. Yeah. Which she is like a woman, a young woman, about the same age as Rosemary, and apparently lives, uh, you know, next door to them with the old couple that you can hear talking through the walls, the Castavets. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, like, mentions to Rosemary that she was kind of rescued by these people, that they, you know, brought her out of, like, this... They helped her get through a drug addiction and, uh, you know, I guess, hinting at the fact that she might have been a prostitute as well mm-hmm. and that they brought her in and, and treated her like the child that they never had, right? Um I think from watching the movie this time, I and my wife got that impression too. And I can't tell whether or not that's the case, but they may have tried to do what happens with Rosemary before. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. The vibe I got was that Terry Genofrio was like, like uh, she was like the the uh, the practice, right? Like she was the before they get to the main show, which would be Rosemary. And I think what the vibe I got was they were trying to do with her everything they do with Rosemary to see if it worked, if it actually worked on people. Right. And I think that's part of the problem is that something happened where either this woman rejected it or something was rejected because after this scene where you get to know her and Rosemary and it's a really nice scene and it, it, again, it feels like something out of a Doris Day movie. Or mm-hmm. like one of those screwball romantic comedies from the '60s. Like it really yeah, they does instantly become friends, and yeah. like Terry's completely likable, and like they both share, like they both bond over not having anybody really uh, looking out for them, except you know, the kind of the strangers of New York City. You know, these are two folks that live in one of the biggest cities in the world, the most mm-hmm. populated cities in the world, and they feel completely isolated, right? And then um, to the point where they even bond and Terry tells Rosemary, hey, like, how about we do laundry together? So that way neither of us have to come down to this creepy basement alone. And I was like, oh, cool. They're going to be friends forever. And then (laughs) like two scenes later, I was proven wrong. Well, yeah, it's important to note that this is also the second part in what Roman Polanski has called the apartment trilogy, which the first one is his film that really got him... uh, got him popular with American audiences repulsion uh, mm-hmm. which was about a woman in an apartment who's basically kind of going nuts and the in her being like you know stuck in this apartment like kind of it, it literally is is kind of an allegory for how she's losing her mind and stuff like that mm-hmm. and Rosemary's Baby is a second part of that the third one is a movie that would come a decade later called The Tenant which mm-hmm. I think Roman Polanski actually starred in that one as well and uh it, the, the what they all have in common is the fear of living in the big city and also just the fact that like there's an anxiety that comes with like there's an anxiety that comes with you being in such close quarters with strangers mm-hmm. and i and think that's all new york city is and this movie captures the anxiety of that pretty well um yeah like you talked about it the scene after that uh rosemary and guy are coming home 
from wherever they were out that evening and there's like police everywhere uh, surrounded like you know this giant mob of people outside of the Branford and immediately when I saw this because we did it last October I thought of The Exorcist I mm-hmm. thought of the scene in The Exorcist where Chris is coming back from the uh, you know from the psychiatrist and and happens to just completely miss uh, the scene of Burke Denning's death uh, there but obviously mm-hmm. the difference is at this time that you know our characters actually spend time at the death scene of this woman Oh, and it, it's funny because the crime scene is handled with all the grace that only the NYPD can handle. <laughs> I told my wife, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> Especially in a year like this, it's just like, god damn it, you bunch of assholes. <laughs> like, let's just leave the corpse all willy-nilly out. And then anytime someone asks a question, just tell them to fuck off. <laughs> well, I'm afraid I got some bad news for you. <laughs> like, handle that with so much care, I swear, dude. Dude, like, how the fuck? that's the cop i want to tell me one of my loved ones died (laughs) well they're dead so just like jesus what is this hey uh you want to see some street pizza because uh you might recognize (laughs) yeah so as they're as they're coming uh you know as as they are i guess identifying this woman uh that's where you actually see for the very first time the cast of that are coming and (laughs) the cast of are I think the best way to describe it, they a are, caricature of a Jewish couple. They no, like to me, they are just like they are these like gaudy, like you know, uh, grotesque, like <laughs> like nosy old people that like I just can't deal with immediately. <laughs> They're so like, difficult to be like just think about. Like, this is almost a sitcom odd couple pairing. You have the young, like, attractive guy in Rosemary. And then you just have the brash and loud and <laughs> annoying fucking Roman and, uh, what was her name? Minnie. Roman and Minnie cast events. Yeah. They're just like, everywhere they go, it's a fucking spectacle. <laughs> I swear to God. You know what's funny about this, too, is, uh, is Minnie Cassavetes, so Ruth Gordon, the actor who who uh, who played Minnie Cassavetes, is mm-hmm. one of the is I think the only person in this movie who won an Oscar, and she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for this role. Well, she did act her ass off because <laughs> if she was supposed to be the villain in the movie, I definitely did hate her. <laughs> she she felt like you know what she reminded me of? Like she reminded me of the precursor to like Principal Skinner's mom in The Simpsons. <laughs> She's <laughs> every sitcom mom that just like berates their son. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. She reminded me of the of the of the mom from Everybody Loves Raymond. Like <laughs> Yeah, no, and it's, 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 you find out that they're, I guess, some really beloved old couple. They're very nice. They took care of her. You know, Rosemary even mentions to them that, you know, she talked about how wonderful you guys are and this and this and that. And, and that's, and, here's a gift for you. You like the <laughs> necklace from a dead girl? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, so the scene ends there. And the very next day, or sometime after, I guess, uh, you get a, you know, you see the renovated uh, apartment now that Guy and Rosemary are living in. And you get the shot of the people in the apartment. And that's kind of like your first time really seeing Ruth Gordon. Um, 
and her character, you know, that's where you know that her character is just one that's going to be barging in at any time of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like the classic nosy neighbor. My wife and I have one of these. Uh, we have a woman that lives downstairs from our unit who it's just like, if she catches you on your way to your car, like, you will have a very just long conversation that you kind of want to pull yourself out of. But you do it, you know, it's, 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 it's like Rosemary, like I identify with her in that, you know, you do it because it's, it's, it's good manners and this and that. It's being polite, but you're, it is very much, and you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's one of those things that shouldn't be an inconvenience, but it just totally is like, that's it. Yeah. So Minnie walks around the entire house being nosy as all hell. Um, She tells Rosemary, um, you know, that the apartment used to belong to her friend. Uh, and co- compliments how it's been completely remodeled since Guy and Rosemary have moved in. Uh, when they're in the kitchen, they start having a conversation where Minnie asked, you know, asked Rosemary, you know, what her husband does, because obviously this is like one of those weird like worlds where, you know, women weren't working yet, <laughs> which, you know, it just, again, for me, it's just, I'm not used to that. So that's very different, but yeah, there's like, what do your husband do? And she mentioned that he's an actor. Same thing that she said to the to the uh, you know the landlord in the beginning of the film. You know, like over and over, she repeats exactly the stuff that guy was in. And she says, "Well, I knew he was an actor because he looked handsome or whatever." And that's where she like invites them for the first time to come visit her and her husband Roman. Um, she kind of guilts them into it, right? Because oh, yeah, she, absolutely. Because she's like, oh, well, you know, we have all this food that we don't need because on account of, you all, you know that girl you saw die that killed herself? <laughs> yeah, we have food for her. So if you want to, like, come and have Terry's food, go for it. And pretty no. much, like, the it's, uh, they feel begrudgingly forced to go um but rosemary eventually just kind of gives in and she says that uh her and guy will be there or yeah guy guy does it right well no so so guy comes home from i guess an audition you know it's revealed that he did not get the audition that he was looking for that some other guy ends up getting it um and you know rosemary tries to console him over it and then she mentions that the neighbors have invited them to you know, to come eat steak and do all that stuff. And then they kind of get into it, into a little bit of a back and forth because guy has no desire to go have dinner with these old people next door and Mm -hmm. doesn't want to become friends with them because once you're friends with people like that, you can't get rid of them. Well, he was definitely right about that. Um, These old fogies. (laughs) But, uh, you know, Rosemary, Rosemary doesn't even really guilt him into it. Like she's, I mean, you could kind of feel it. That's what she's doing, but it really does feel like she's like, I'm not really in the mood to go. But, you know, I told him that we'd go and, uh, you know. And she even says, like, don't feel bad. I'm not trying to guilt you. Don't go if you don't want. And he goes, fine, I'll go. Pretty much anyone that's been in a relationship and has gone to a significant other's, like, friend's party or something has had this conversation in some way, shape, or form. So they end up going and we get to meet Roman. I was about to say Polanski. Roman (laughs) Kestavet. Who has some fucking fierce ass eyebrows? <laughs> yes, he does. Yeah. Who he's also another character that looks like. I feel like all the old guys look like Grandpa Munster in this. <laughs> That's just the, the old man in the sixties become is Grandpa Munster. 
Oh, yeah, so they end up having dinner. Um, shit, dude. Uh, what do they talk about? You know this movie more than I do. <laughs> well, they talk about how apparently the Pope is in New York City. That's and right. That's you right. Get your, and you get your first, like, hint at the fact that, you know, that this couple is obviously not religious. Um, Rosemary, I, I guess, Minnie makes a comment that Rosemary looks... Uh, you know, disturbed by what they're saying or offended by what they're saying. And that's where you kind of, it's really the first time I noticed this, that, that they are already telling you that these people aren't religious at all. Um, you know, it, it's, and it just kind of is like, anytime you have a convert, like you, you go to these awkward, like dinners with people that you don't know that well, it's like, it feels so like religion and politics always come up, even though you don't want them to. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like for some reason it's just, it's, those are just topics that like that we like immediately jump to talking about with strangers, which I don't know why, because I feel like they're they're so revealing in terms of just like the kind of person you are based on those kinds of things. But whatever, right? Um, later, they're having you know dessert. You know they they uh, they ask the Cassavets you know things about themselves. These people don't look particularly sad that someone in their family has you know in their <laughs> surrogate family has died. They meet it's like they almost completely forget about Terry as soon as she dies. I completely forget about Terry after she dies, unfortunately. Yeah. And uh she's obviously because she was just in one scene and mm-hmm. Burt Dennings in The Exorcist was in the movie longer <laughs> and had more like memorable like sleazeball lines. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, it, they, you know, they, they have dinner with them after that. They end up going back to their room. They're clearly drunk. and But after dinner, Rosemary and uh, Minnie are doing the dishes in the kitchen. And they're kind of having a discussion where Minnie's asking her about, like, you know, the people in her family. Like, do are any of them married? Are any of her sisters, like, mm-hmm. have kids? You know, how many kids do they have? And yeah, she, she, she makes it a point, like, rosemary does to talk about the fertility in her family and really trying to learn like some very private information right (laughs) away like and i in in my only comfortable yeah my only like way of like just dealing with this is the fact that i feel like generations before ours were a lot more open with you know with conversation and just like the kinds of stuff that you would say to strangers i feel like our generation and even gen z it's like we are much less inclined to talk to people we don't have to. Like, you know, like we don't talk to people on the subway. We don't talk to people, you know, on campuses if we don't have to, you know, at work if you don't have to. Like, I feel like our generations now are much more inclined to avoid any kind of, any kind of social interaction with people. Which and if we now do that, keep it very surface <laughs> level, it's never anything too deep with complete strangers anyway. Well, and it's going to change even more now because obviously the pandemic that we're all living through, like, I mean, I think that this thing is going to change the way that we interact with strangers, period, after this, regardless of anything else. Like, we're just not going to look at people in public the same way that we did before. So, yes, it is a culture shock to see, like, how willing and giving these people are with a lot of their personal information. I know. Nowadays, we don't, we won't even tell people our fucking names unless they have three references. Like, <laughs> holy shit. Nowadays, you say hi to somebody, you get cattle prodded, you know? Like, <laughs> but while this is happening, Rosemary uh, peeks outside of the kitchen and you know, sees the cigar, the cigar smoke or cigarette smoke that's coming from the, 
from the den uh, or the parlor or whatever where Guy and uh, Roman are. And when they end up coming back into the parlor, like, you know, Guy kind of like jolts up and, and seems ready to go. And almost like if somebody's told him something like really interesting that he's still trying to process. Mm-hmm. Um, and he seems like a bit of a skeptic. Like it seems like nothing really phases him. You know, it seems like a, despite the fact that I think they say he's originally from Baltimore, he's got a bit of this, you know, stereotypical New York attitude where he just like, you know, nothing really phases him or whatever. Yeah, um, he doesn't wear his heart in his sleeve at all. He's very like, you know, and you're just like average dude. Really, you're like okay with him at this point, and you know, this is after. Oh, uh- up until this point, and I think maybe a couple scenes later, like do you have no question whether he loves Rosemary or not. You know, like it feels like they are very much in a healthy and happy relationship with each other, and they actually do care about each other. And you think that you get that vibe from him that he actually does care about her. And so I guess like, you know, this is where things change. This is where the shift happens because mm-hmm. the very next day guy goes from being the person who really wasn't interested in being around these people to, I'm actually going to go back and talk to Roman again tomorrow. He has all mm-hmm. these great stories that I want to hear about. And oh, that's what it was that, that Roman knows so many famous people. Yes. And he knows so many academics, and that's what piqued guys' interest in him. And actors and people in the theater and stuff like yeah. that. So it's like a bit of a network opportunity for him, right? And yeah, I think so Rosemary he... recognizes that, which is why she like is fine allowing him to go, you know, talk to this guy. Mm-hmm. But it's also like, yeah, she's not interested in going, and this is actually where what you thought was going to happen ends up getting completely subverted. Mm-hmm. That Rosemary was going to be the one that gets too close to these neighbors, and it actually ends up becoming Guy. And it's interesting because of how different their their interactions were with them, right? And again, part of this could be in 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 just like the difference of interactions and what's expected from people as far as gender roles go. Because you know, as Guy, it became like you said a networking opportunity. It became this chance for him to kind of expand his career and uh, really get to know and kind of, kind of go schmoozing, right? Schmoozing with these people that can really uh, put him on the map as far as being an actor goes. And meanwhile, the conversations that, well, I mean, that's what you're left to assume the conversations with uh, Roman and Guy are with um, Rosemary. It's just, it's what's her role as a woman is how fertile she is. Can she pop a baby out right fucking now? Like, <laughs> That's pretty much uh, her interaction, right? And this is where watching this now has so colored my experience uh, just in how I feel about this movie. I thought of Guy as somebody... Do you hear her screaming? Yeah, my perspective is completely different on Guy now. Uh, Before I thought of him, yes, I thought of him as like one of the crappy people that Rosemary has to deal with. I didn't realize just how immediately complicit he becomes inside of this coven. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like from the very moment. And I think I had to watch a couple like analysis on this movie to really kind of get what's happening here. And I can explain it for this, for the purposes of this show. Mm -hmm. So the first night that they're there, it's obvious that Roman has told guy what it is that he can do for him. 
right? As, as like an act, like to get him the opportunities that he needs as an actor. It's very clear that they made some sort of pact this night that Rosemary would end up having the Satan child um, in, in exchange for Guy, you know, being able to launch his career. Uh, what, happen- what ends up happening that you find out later in the film is, I guess the next day, or at some point after, uh, guy works really quick, man. (laughs) Yeah, no, very quick because guy ends up, uh, meeting up with the guy who's the, he's supposed to be the understudy for, or the guy who ends up actually winning the part in the play that guy was going out for. Mm -hmm. And I guess they traded ties. ties. Yeah. And you find out through a phone call, uh, that this, actor ends up going blind and that (laughs) ends up making guy the runner-up who is now going to be the star of this play that's going to end up launching his career honey i got some great news the guy that that beat me out for the job went blind (laughs) well you know guy is really good at like at at, you know seeming confused it's like you know like this isn't exactly how i wanted to get it but you know yeah it's, it's what happened and the first time I was like, I was like, man, is it guilt that he's dealing with and stuff like that? And I think I know what it is. Well, now that I've like seen these analyses and stuff like that, guy is a skeptic, and he wasn't totally sure that this guy was going to be able to deliver on the promise that he had. And mm-hmm. this is where guy actually realizes that these people have real power, and that's and, where, and that's why the first person he wants to go talk to is like, is where he talks about he's going to go take a walk and stuff like that. He's obviously going to talk to Roman. Mm-hmm. Um, so he uh so pretty much at, at that from that point on he's like oh fuck now i have to i have to follow through like yeah yeah and you find out they, in the way that you know that now you know that that rosemary is now this is the thing when my, i watched this movie with my wife for the first time like she'd never seen it before and uh i really wanted to get the perspective of someone who's been pregnant and had a child before because i think it's just a valuable experience to or point of view to have when you're reviewing a movie like this which she didn't want to get on the show on mic but she did but she was willing to actually watch the movie and like we actually had a discussion about it afterwards and i think one of the biggest things about this movie that makes it a horror film is that it really is all about the loss of control uh Rosemary immediately loses control over everything. And the first one is guys, the one who tells her that they want to have a baby now. And I uh, never thought about that. That is a very good point is that he was the one that was like, we're doing it right now. Yeah. Like to the point where he's pointing at the calendar and he's saying, this is the perfect time to do it. And, and you know, if we do it now, it's going to happen then and all that kind of stuff. And Honey, look, it's almost a, the moon will be blood red tonight. This is the perfect <laughs> time to go down to Poundtown. Yeah. And so the scene after that is, I guess, where they've decided, yes, we're going to have kids. We're now going to, you know, we're going to try to make them now. So they have this like romantic evening. Um, they, they have this romantic evening by the fireplace and they're having dinner and all that kind of stuff. And it's a really nice, like at this point you've seen what the entire apartment looks like now that it's been remodeled and it feels and it's like furnished and it actually looks like a home now. <laughs> and guys careers now started taking off more. So it feels now like you're in one of these like high society, like homes and you're living with these like, you know, really rich people, uh, 
Pretty much, it's it reminds me of what uh, it's the same vibe as um, what's her name? Uh, Regan's apartment in New York and uh, yeah, in in Exorcist Two. Yeah, this, this like they've they've it, it's I feel like another analogy for this movie as well is not only about the loss of control. I think in terms of guy like what guy does in this film, I think this movie is is a good example of capitalism also. <laughs> because I think yes. that, because I think that what this movie is also saying in a way is that to become a rich person in a big city or a successful career person, you do have to sell your soul or you have <laughs> to sacrifice something to an evil force to do it. <laughs> this movie shows you the decadence of the West. And this was the, well, this was the 1960s, right? And, th- and this was the, the decade of the counterculture. So the hippies and the women's movements and all that kind of stuff, the civil rights movements, like this really was a time of uprising. Uh, There was the protests against Vietnam. Like this was a time where I think part of the reason why people were so afraid of the occult and why the Church of Satan made such a big impact and stuff like that is because people did think that we were watching the end of the American way or the Christian way the traditional families and stuff like that. Because of course, in this country, everything filters through what white Christians think. Mm. (laughs) Like to this day, it's like that. And, you know, obviously if you were someone who was a person of color in the 1960s, like you were in the counterculture because this was now the time where the counterculture was going mainstream. Uh, but yeah, they become they become evil sixties yuppies, <laughs> and that's the thing. Yeah, because uh, I don't know. You can also make the counter argument where it's like you know the one of the things is that the only way you can actually make it is if you become the big sellout, right? Yeah. Um, it's so, not necessarily about keeping your integrity as an artist or as a person. I think it's just you want to survive. The, the you got to play by the rules, right? And I think that's the whole thing about guys that he's learning what the rules are as the movie goes on. Right. And so while they're, while they're having, you know, after they've already completed their dinner, uh, Minnie ends up going to the door and she ends up giving them dessert, which was a chocolate mousse. What's that? Are you guys in mid coitus? What a great time for (laughs) you to come in. Here's your chocolate pudding. Yeah. And then this movie is great because it really does like, it juxtaposes like these weird, (laughs) goofy, like, you know, uh, like moments with big brassy, like mini with creepier stuff that happens on the under. Mm -hmm. And after they end up having, so, so Rosemary and Guy are eating their dessert. Rosemary complains about the the undertaste. Yes. I was like, who the fuck calls it the undertaste? Yeah, like, I mean, I've heard aftertaste. And and she talks about how it's like, you know, obviously she she can tell that something is not right with what she's eating. And this is the first example, I think, of this movie. And he will continue doing it for the entire film. But this is really the first time that Guy starts gaslighting Rosemary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because here on out, it becomes Gaslight, the action movie, baby. It really is. Like, this movie, what makes it so fucking horrifying is that this crowd of people in this, like, building are all gaslighting her for two hours. (laughs) Um and you know, well, you don't have to eat it. She spent all her time doing this, so eat it. And they, and he ends up getting He's really just like shoving it down her. her mouth. 
So she <laughs> like, so she eats part of it, and then when she tells him to get up and turn the record around, you know, for the music, she ends up just dumping the rest of it into her napkin, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, after she's finished washing the dishes, she starts getting very dizzy and ends up passing out. And this is, you know what? I cannot believe that this is a scene that I've paid so little attention to in all the times that I've watched this movie growing up, but I could not watch it the same way anymore. It's pretty, well, not just a dream, but it's pretty fucking horrifying uh, that, when she falls asleep, Guy ends up, you know, taking her clothes off and stuff like that. She's going in and out of dreams, like, because mm-hmm. obviously she didn't eat all of the moose. So she is cognizant for some of this stuff, even though I guess what this, that moose was meant to do was make it so that she didn't remember anything. But yeah, because- it's so that she would be completely out of it while this demon rapes and impregnates her with his seed. Right. And, you know, so you go to the dream where they're all in a boat. Uh, When they get on the boat, they end up leaving Hutch behind. Uh, So I think it's a good representation of, you know, them really leaving, basically leaving all the people that they used to know. And now Rosemary's just going to be completely isolated with all these strangers that they're living in in the Brantford. Mm -hmm. Um, They're the the elevator operator is now the captain of the yacht that they're in. And uh, when the water starts getting wild, they end up having to go, she ends up having to go down, you know, to one of the rooms, I guess, inside the yacht. And this room actually looks a lot like Minnie and Roman's uh, apartment. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the good things, well, one of the really interesting things that this movie did that also reminded me of The Exorcist is how it feeds you information that you wouldn't have looked for anyway. And that's the first time that Rosemary and Guy went into Minnie and Roman's apartment. Rosemary notes that all the pictures were taken off the wall. That's right. She did mention that. And she she even points out how fucking weird that was. That's like if it was their apartment and it was their home, why are all the pictures gone? Right. And in this, you know, like in her dream, she sees like all these like wild like pictures. They actually end up seeing, you know, Grandpa Munster LaVey like, his poster on the wall and while that's happening all of these like naked occultists just like hereditary oh naked old people again dude yes this is week two of naked old people the movie (laughs) but you know what you know i'm drawing another parallel to uh hereditary between hereditary and rosemary's berry baby both of these movies go through the entire process of, you know, some sort of demonic possession. Yes. And it's really interesting because they do use the very similar, um, they use very similar, uh, uh, what's it called? Ceremonies, I guess. Yeah. It's ritual. That, it's ritualistic. Yeah. It's like, and they both use a very, and that's why they lend to each other so well is that they follow the same ritual. And it's like, it establishes in that in the occult there are rules to this shit and you have to follow the rules right mm-hmm. you know your victim has to eat something a root uh some some foreign substance that they have to ingest usually unknown to them because of course they wouldn't agree to this shit and i think i mean it could be a stretch maybe a death like in hereditary a death was needed to summon payment 
maybe Terry's death would have been the the the, cata- the the catalyst to you know summoning the demon that comes back to uh to to impregnate uh Rose but um yeah 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 you know what's funny too because one of the things that we talked about in hereditary I don't know if we talked about it in hereditary but there's an idea behind at least the cult of payment I think was that there were supposed to be three people that died right yeah oh I told you about that yeah there was yeah. Uh, three beheadings to summon payment Three people die in this movie. Um, the first Hutch, one, yeah, Terry, Hutch, Terry, and then the person who lived in the unit before Rosemary and Guy moved in. Oh, that is a good point. There so it does. So it does feel like it's 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 again. It, it feels like I think that's why it felt like Hereditary was such a like you spiritual know. successor to this. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Um, and in this scene, you know, this is the scene where she's dreaming about like, you know, having Satan rape her and Satan had like these really crazy like Muppet arms <laughs> and like the face. But, you know, I never really noticed exactly that Satan really is guy in this scenario. Mm-hmm. It's just some, uh, I, I, I could see that he was just him in makeup. And it's like the whole representation of like how he's betraying her. Right. And now right. he is he is complete like I mean if Satan is supposed to be the prince of lies and the ultimate betrayer, like who who else is he gonna take the form of in the context of this story? Right? Exactly. And I think this is the this is the part of it where like I was just like, fuck this guy forever. Mm. I will never I just hope like a bus hits him or something. Like I'm just I am so finished with this character. Oh, when is she the came fact... in all stabby stabby towards the end, I was really hoping I <laughs> was gonna get it just right in the face. You know? Well, yeah, because she she wakes up the next morning where she talks about you know like during the dream she talks about this is not a dream this is really happening while she's actually being raped. She ends up apologizing to a priest uh, or to the Pope, I guess, you know, I in her dream and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like all this like weird, like crazy imagery and shit like that. But we the didn't next... even talk about that first dream where she was like apologizing to an angry nun because she missed choir practice or some shit. Well, and it's funny too, because the nun has the voice of Minnie. like, yeah. And, and what it hella made me think about was, you know, like those, like, have you ever had it where you're like half asleep, but half like awake where you're like dreaming but you're kind of cognizant and like conversations that you hear or something from the television or something that you would hear on the like you know if you were awake are filtering into your dream somehow like that is oh, totally that's happening to me, yeah <laughs> like that that's that's why like i feel like this movie has really captured dreams in a way that i i can't say that a lot of other movies have mm-hmm it, it actually, it, it's a very realistic way of handling how, what dreams feel like. Yeah. As and the most, as honestly, the most shocking part about this the next morning is the confession that Guy gives her where he basically says to her that he had sex with her while she was like passed out. Oh my God, that was disgusting. Like that. And I was, was just like, like ew! That is like absolutely disgusting and frightening. And you know, let's let's be clear. Marital rape is an actual thing that happens, and much like any other time that you have any sexual partner, you know, if they are not interested in having sex, then you need to be okay with that. <laughs> Just because y'all married doesn't mean uh, you don't need consent. Yes, you need to have consent from your partner, 
And uh, I have, you know, again, the only thing I can think of is different time. It must be that people were okay with like being, I mean, obviously Rosemary's not okay with that, mm. but it's just like, goddamn, like it's one of those things that's so controversial now that I'm just like, how did anybody just like think this was okay <laughs> to put this in an American film, of, or a film period? And of all the fucking people in yeah. hindsight, mm-hmm. it's like, it's such a, and, and you're right. It is one of those things. I hate being that guy. It's like, well, it's a different fucking time, but it really is in the sense that, it was okay and it was viewed as okay because suppose and and it goes back to the whole like the 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 role of women during this time even as as recent as the 60s and 70s right where we still had this idea of what a gender role what of the box that the woman should have fit into and what she's supposed to do and how she's supposed to serve her husband so in it just it's the real terrifying part to think about this is how common that mentality was well, yeah, because... I mean, aside from the whole, like, you know, demon impregnating her thing, that that's also scary. Well, again, this was, again, this was a time of sexual revolution. Um, <clears throat> one of the more interesting uh, things that you watch when you watch something like Godfather 2 that would come out the next decade is there's an abortion storyline that, that happens in that film that you're just like, wow, like, you know, this is 1974. This movie is taking place in the 50s and 60s. Um, and so, like, you know, the fact that, again, this movie, what makes it a horror film, and I think my wife corroborated it when we watched it, is really the fact that this movie is a microcosm for what this country and what, you know, patriarchy in general tries to do to women, which mm-hmm. is keep them repressed keep them without education she's discouraged from reading books like up and down in this film uh they decide what doctor she should be going to um the neighbors what medication she's supposed to take they give her all these supplements and she's just meant to accept all of it and it's just you feel really awful for mia farrow and i think one of the things that my wife brought up when we talked about this was one of the things that she thought about watching Rosemary this entire movie and what kind of made it a really depressing film for her to watch is that Rosemary also seems to like, at least the way that it comes off is that she's someone who's in an abusive relationship Mm -hmm. and guy may obviously may not be physically abusive to her. Actually, he if he if he raped her, then that's exactly what he is. Then yeah, he is a he's a he's a rapist. Like, but yeah, no, if, like if that part was true. But there's like you know the the sad part of it to my wife was the fact that she seems like this character who, you know, is resigned to the stuff that's happening around her. So she just goes along with it. Mm-hmm. The saddest thing to think about, as far as Rosemary's character is, is that the last time you see her actually smile and be happy is when Dr. Hill tells her she's pregnant. No, there's other times that hap- there's other times where she still does get happy later in the film. But the problem is or at least what's noticeable about it is that guy is the one who's like very like giving her something to disinterested. He's the one yeah, he's He's like, completely disinterested. Guy had no interest in touching the baby when he felt the baby move, obviously because he knows what's in there. Um, he like Rosemary like mentions that he could barely look at her 
like when she first got pregnant, like he wasn't able to look at her at all. And I don't know if it's the fact that he's dealing with guilt or if he is just like, you know, dealing with being, you know, like that weird thing. He's just where, being an uber douche. Yeah, exactly. Where it's like, you know, well, you know, almost like, almost like how men will look at women as being impure when they've like had sex with someone who's not them. Yeah. Right. Like, like it's almost you know, like, like the, like whole the thing fact that, that society demands, <laughs> yeah, that society demands that women are pure <laughs> and, and, and mm-hmm. maintain, you know, no partners while men are allowed to do whatever they want. What? You had a sexual history before me? Disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you whore. Yeah. And, but, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's the whole, it's the whole, um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to feel like I'm beating it to death, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's shining a mirror on the, like you said, it's a microcosm. It's shining the mirror or shining a light on the patriarchy and the fucking, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, it'll come back to me, but yeah, it's just pointing out the hypocrisy. There we go. The hypocrisy behind the, the thought and the hypocrisy we have with, uh, on our attitude towards women, you know? One of the things I do like that this movie does do in a physical way is that it does represent Rosemary's, uh, it does represent uh, Rosemary's journey into becoming a more modern woman as well. Mm-hmm. Specifically, when she cuts her hair, right? Like she starts oh off. Oh my as, god! Starts god, off I'm such a douche during this. Yes. <laughs> so she starts off as very infantile and kind of like you know like almost like guy seems to talk to her like she's a child or something like that mm-hmm. when she becomes pregnant it's like she seems more like i guess that's like the adolescence period maybe but i feel like yeah she she grows into real maturity and i think this is a good you know it's it's what motherhood does right like like one of the things that my wife talked about is there's so much stuff that happened like that she just could identify with watching this movie because pains that you cannot explain happen all the time there is an Mm -hmm. anxiety that you feel especially in those first few months that you're pregnant you know according to her this is not me there's an anxiety Mm -hmm. that you feel in those first few months of being pregnant where uh you feel like you're not going to be able to take care of the baby and what happens if the baby dies like is oh my god is the baby still there and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. especially for first-time mothers like it's it's a very you know, it's stressful experience to go through. Right. And, um, and she's going through all of it alone. And I think that's the part where you're just like, damn, like, you know, obviously me as like someone who watched my wife be pregnant with our child. Um, I was as involved in it as I, as I could be. Right. We went to the Lamaze classes and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I remember seeing some of the women who were in those classes who did not have partners with them. And I, the discussion, the conversation that me and my wife had on the way home was, you know, I just told her, I was like, man, it's like, you know, give a lot of respect to the women who have to go through that alone because there's two of us. And this feels like such a, like, it just feels like such a just overwhelming sense of these two responsibilities that you're going to be dealing with. So, you know, to single parents out there, you know, hats off to you guys because, you know, you guys are stronger than I could ever be at this point in my life. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's, it, it, like, it annoys me as, like, someone who's been in the guy role, right? Because it's, like, 
you're supposed to be there with them. And on top of that, one of the things that that you should do as men, especially men of color, but just men in general, is when your wife is pregnant and she's dealing with her pre like you know with all the prenatal stuff and even going into labor and stuff like that you have to be able to advocate for your wife especially because unfortunately the world that we still live in now is women and women of color are not taken seriously by doctors and medical professionals in many places still because there aren't enough female doctors or there just aren't enough female doctors of color you know, just whatever, right? Like there, there are these things where you are in situations as the partner where sometimes if your wife is telling you something and other doctors don't believe them or nurses don't believe them and stuff like that, you have to be there to advocate. You have to be prepared to advocate for them at any time. See that scene in Knocked Up when uh, Seth Rogen gets super mad into <laughs> yeah. the doctor's face and tells him that he's Tupac, he's Biggie, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like no, I I hundred percent agree. Like, unfortunately, it's something where, and it's not, and it's not a made up thing. It's it's fucking facts, y'all. I can't quote it because I don't have the internet like in my brain. But yeah, there is a high percentage of like health disparities when it comes to women of color, specifically black women, <laughs> and like when it comes to pregnancies uh, compared to to their white counterparts, you know. So it's really like, it's one of those things where it's like, you need to advocate for like the autonomy of these women. You need to advocate for, for, for their right to health. Right. And that's makes it even more infuriating, at least for me coming from the, the, the social services background, how infuriating it is to see how much guy just like fucking brushes every single issue Rosemary has in this film. Whether it's yeah, her weight like, loss, whether it's her like pains, whether it's her like, haircut, her haircut, he just like berates her or minimizes her feelings. Gaslight, 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 <laughs> like all day he's, and night. Yeah, like he, he, it's fucking infuriating. He's it's the like, devil in this movie. <laughs> he is literally <laughs> the devil in this movie. And you can't help but fucking feel like so much sympathy for Rosemary as she goes through this. Well, yeah, and then the other one too is like i mean obviously we live in a world now where there are more, a lot more female doctors my wife when she was pregnant had a female doctor um and it's just when you're watching her just kind of like be talked down to by these male doctors about you know specifically saperstein about like you know you don't shouldn't read books and stuff like that it's what just are you doing? like you're rotting your brain with these books they just you know it, it she feels even more alone and that's the part that's so frustrating about this movie. Because Mia Farrow is an actress that, you know, that when you see her in a movie, it's just, God, you care about her. And she plays such a just nice character, wholesome character that you just want things to work out for her. But unfortunately, thanks to her fucking monster devil husband, like she's just been thrown into this awful situation. Mm-hmm. Is um, this the... Is this around this time? Is that when Rosemary has the party with her and her friends yeah. come over? Yeah, like I mean, she 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 becomes increasingly suspicious of the neighbors, you know, and Doctor Saperstein because she's dealing been dealing with these pains for a very long time, and she kind of hits a point where she's even talked to Hutch about it, and Hutch goes to see her, and when by the time Hutch gets to see her, like 
pregnant for the first time. Like she looks like a Tim Burton character. She is absolutely pale, pale. Skinny as fuck. Oh my God. It is so frightening. Like she looks like a ghoul. It is so frightening. She, and mm-hmm. she's supposed to be pregnant, right? They, they all make, I mean, one of the things that's mean that even Hutch does and everyone else at her party does that upsets me is the fact that everyone makes a point to kind of shit all over her appearance. They're like, aren't you supposed to be gaining weight? And I'm yeah, like, which is oh, like, fuck you. But you know what? That's another thing that happens, right? Like, you will be surprised that when you are either going to become a parent or your child has already been born, one of the things that there's no shortage of is a bunch of nosy ass people who want to tell you what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Or why aren't you, or why are you looking this way? Or why don't you do this thing this other way? And it's just like, fuck all of you. <laughs> I will raise my kid to eat crayons if I goddamn feel like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's just that that's, this again, this movie just outlines all of that very perfectly. Um, yeah, Rosemary decides that she wants to have a party and she wants to invite their friends who are not these old people that live in this building. <laughs> She's like, I love when Rosemary's like, the rule is you had to be under 60 to get into the party. Yeah. I was which, like, you sassy bitch. I see. I, yeah, I, I love that part of it. But it's just, it also just calls attention to the fact that, like, there was a moment earlier in the film where Rosemary mentions to Guy that they were going to go meet with friends and he basically turns it down to go meet with Minnie and Roman. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, you you realize that she is so, so isolated from all the people that she cares about. Because these people clearly all live in the same city, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like they don't ever see each other. And this is the first time most of them had ever even seen her since she's been pregnant. This is a tactic very common among abusers is you isolate the victim. You don't let them see their friends or family they're you know as the abuser your friends become her friends or their friend or the victim's friends and that be and again it's about establishing yourself as the person that is in power and control and that's pretty much what he's done luckily you know she tries to you know bring in her she tries to bring in her uh, some semblance of norm, normalcy brings in her friends for her old life um and this is the only part of the movie where she feels like safe where it feels like god like i just wish these people could be around her all the time like mm-hmm. i wish these characters were with her all the time and yeah because they kick guy let her go the, they kick <laughs> guy out of the kitchen when she's having a breakdown yeah because and, she's like opening up about how she's been feeling so isolated yeah and to be totally honest i don't know if that's i don't know if that's intentional like i don't know if, the, if it's intentional that this movie makes guy out to be such an abuser uh, I f- it, who knows maybe it is and maybe Roman Polanski is is brilliant you know, is, the is, biggest is, fucking hypocrite in the history of yeah. <laughs> no I mean it's just like it's just like yeah again like you were talking about like she exhibits like classic signs of someone who's in an abusive relationship and um, even after even after the party's over you know where well Rosemary talks to her friends and they all recommend that she goes to see you know, the other doctor, Dr. Dr. Hill, Hill yeah. who she was supposed to go see in the first place. But she ended up not going to see him because, you know, the Cassavetes like recommend that they go see Saperstein, who is apparently like the most famous doctor in New York. And you know, again, it's like this is this is the high society doctor that you should all be going to. He he's makes rich. home visits. Yeah, like he's, you know, it reminds me of like Eyes Wide Shut in a way. 
where it's yeah. like all these like rich New York doctors, like you know, you, you know that this doctor is probably like having old people orgies at like Roman's house. <laughs> Except the orgies here are, you know, to end the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um and what and, happens as soon as her friends leave is fucking guy has the explosion of anger, right? Yes. And it's like finally the eggshell period is over, and at this point we have the explosion where he like where he he finally like lashes out at her, calls her friend bitches, her friends bitches, and that they're like <laughs> filling her mind with garbage and that she that she doesn't need them, that that's all he needs. All of that straight from the abuser playbook. <laughs> and I thought it was really interesting too that when Rosemary talks about how she wants to go see Dr. Hill that what guy ends up saying is we'll think about dr saperstein and like that's where she just like fucking throws it right back at him and she goes think about dr saperstein what the fuck like think about me like like what about me like i'm the one who people should be caring about because i'm the one who's having the baby i'm the one growing a human in my body and it's just like it again that's that's another moment where it's just like guy is so fucking detached from this and this is the scene where, like, after this argument happens, where Rosemary feels the baby kick, and because she got that one moment of relief, you know, now she's going to go back to drink, doing all the stupid drinks, going to Saperstein. All right, well, let me get out of these crazy ideas. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you know, the abuse works, right? It's the, because it's the whole path of least resistance. Yes. So three months later, Rosemary gets a call from a friend of theirs, Grace Cardiff. Yes. Who lets her know that Hutch has passed away. Right. And and Hutch initially ends up, you know, like meeting Rosemary, like when they first move in and, and then Guy comes in and stuff like that, which is first pregnant and Guy comes in and they kind of like start talking about like, like it's almost like he's going to warn her about the neighbors that they have. Right. There's that weird scene where Roman shows up in, in the living room. He takes, uh, either he or guy ends up taking the glove that belonged to Hutch mm-hmm. and the next day it's like he's in a coma. So much like what they did with the actor, you know, mm-hmm. the actor ends up getting uh he ends up going he blind. He gives him his tie, yeah, yeah, before they made him blind. And then in this one they end up putting Hutch into a coma and 3 months after he's in his coma that's when he's he's passed away. Uh, Rosemary goes to the funeral and at the funeral, I guess either his building manager or assistant of some sort uh, ends up giving her a book uh, called all of them, Witches," which is, which is <laughs> what she goes through when she's sitting in the floor of her apartment and where she starts putting all the dots together as to what yeah. exactly is happening to her. So she see, you know, she uses, uh, she uses these, tiles uh because one of the last things that hutch tells people is that the name is an anagram so as scrabbles yeah yeah uh rosemary uses scrabble tiles to spell out every uh what's called all every them all which what what's the name of the book <laughs> well the book is called all of them witches yeah what so they're looking at is i guess the name so so the book, she thinks it's all of them witches but uh so she tries playing around with that can't come up with anything that makes sense however she starts playing around with uh she starts reading through the book and how it's underlined and highlighted for her uh with certain passages and so she ends up like find i think she takes steven marcato 
mm-hmm. and rearranges it into Roman cast of it. Yes. Or it was the other way around. No, no, no. It was no, that no. way, right? Yeah, yeah. it's exactly like that. So she Which, takes the name Stephen Marcato and then like figures out that that's actually the, an anagram for Roman Castavet, and it's just like it, it's meant to blow your mind, and you like pretty much saying that he's the son of um, of uh, what's his name, uh, Anton Delavay Light <laughs> Munster. Anton the Munster. Anton the Munster. We're gonna be assaulted by fucking Satanists. Yeah, and let's be clear. There's the, we. I don't have anything against Satanists. Like I've even mentioned to my wife, it's like in decades that have gone since. It's like you know, people are aware that even the Church of Satan is like. Are you like, kidding? I, uh, like Satanists are gonna do anything to us? They're a bunch of fucking lone wolves. They. Can't. You know what? The, the day the day that the Church of Satan like has like you know, shooters that mass shooters that go in and, and shoot people in churches or start shooting up schools and stuff like that. You know, maybe, maybe we'll think of them as horrifying as like their beliefs or our paranoia about religion will make you think that they are. But in my opinion, Christianity has been responsible for so many atrocities in the world that, that I'm not going to fucking pretend that it's like, you know, that it's so much better (laughs) in many ways. Anyway, like I was saying, come at me, Satanists. You guys have to organize together, and you guys try to decide who's going to be the leader of all of y'all. Because, you know, one of the main tenets of Levain Satanism is that everyone's their own leader. That's the joke. That's the joke I'm trying to make. You know what? Fuck you. Read a book. (laughs) Read all of them witches or some shit. (laughs) No, but, yeah, she, she finds the anagram. She finds out that Roman is actually the son of this guy. Um, and you know, he's basically continuing the tradition and, you know, one of the things that I got as a reading out of this movie is that there's a chance that there is no demon baby at all. And it's just Mm -hmm. something that they do every generation to keep people engaged in this church, (laughs) you know, it could be very, like on the other possibility is that she's hallucinating a lot of this because of the psychotropic drugs they keep feeding her. Yes. Like she is absolutely taking like high out of her goddamn mind this entire movie. (laughs) mm -hmm. Like, and that, I guess that's part of the horror of this is you don't know is that there is so little Rosemary has so little fucking control of her life that it's been planned out to her to the point you have no idea which way is up at this point. Yeah, she is the person inside the dollhouse, uh, like the characters in Hereditary last week. Mm. Um, but I think one of the things that is kind of good, that is kind of nice about this movie in terms, just in this part of it, is that there is a section of this film with the all of them witches and when she's getting more educated on the subject where she does feel like now she's taking control over herself where it's like, all right, I let all of you guys control me long enough. I'm not going to be drinking any more of that stuff. I'm going to be in control of myself. I'm going to go see the doctor I wanted to go see. I'm going to go, you know, okay guy, you're going to go throw away my book. You know, that, that I buy three more books. Exactly. And, you know, then it's what's even more heartbreaking is, you know, after Guy has done that and she decides that she's going to go see Dr. Hill on her own, you know, she she calls him from the payphone, says, you have to meet with you today, uh, explains to him every single thing that's happened with this cult 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he tells her, okay, well, why don't you go lay down and we'll try to get you a room at the hospital so we can get you prepared. This sack of goddamn shit, instead mm-hmm. of actually listening to her and trying to help her, which is what the point of doctors are, you know, like the entire point of being a doctor is that you're supposed to be there to help people. But obviously, because this doctor is a man and will not take anything that this crazy dame says seriously ends up actually calling sap like he is he ends up like snitching on her like to her husband <laughs> and the cult he just like <laughs> starts pointing fingers and giving up names so easily but again what was it that we find out we find out dr hill actually knows dr saperstein and that he has a lot of respect for him so it's one of those things where even well, no. if cult well, part doesn't of it, have control, like complete control, is they have clout and they have the power yes. and they know they have... And they don't do this with everybody because, mm-hmm. you know, there are other characters in the film that talk about, you know, that are normal people that are, you know, that are patients of Saperstein. And because yep. Saperstein is someone who is considered, you know, one of the best doctors in New York, you know, again, like you said, like he has clout. Mm-hmm. and it's like well we're all right it's almost like one of those things where i've heard like you know i work in i work in a corporate environment like i've had women who i work with in this corporate environment talk about how you know like even someone who has a respected title as a woman it's like even if you're a manager and you like tell someone to do something in many cases male coworkers may not take you seriously until another male manager even if it's someone below them like they will not take it seriously until a man tells them. And that's what this kind of feels like is that it's like, all right, well, I'm not going to listen to you until I get your husband's opinion on this or your male doctor's opinion on this. And it's like, yes, like these people are all betraying her. And the, what makes this such a horror film is the fact that there is nobody around her that she can trust. Like the haunted house is everything around her. And I love, that's one of the things I love about this movie. Oh, sorry. How they were able to make a, such a big, iconic city like New York. And how it can make you still feel lonely and scared and completely isolated from the rest of the world. Like, I think any horror movie that's able to take very high populated areas like metropolitan areas, well-known areas, and make them feel like this hidden, scary, isolated place are are fucking fantastic. The Exorcist does it. The Exorcist does it so perfectly. The Exorcist does it on a fantastic scale. Like Like, Georgetown. Georgetown is like one of the most expensive places to live in the entire country. Uh, Obviously, the character that lives there is an actress also she has all the money in the world to get the best doctors and get the best you know help for her daughter but no matter what it, she feels absolutely isolated and she's the one that has to deal with this demon child by herself like the sawyer compound in texas chainsaw massacre is terrifying because of how isolated it is but it doesn't compare to the the, the type of fear you feel being in uh being in rosemary's apartment in the Brantford in the middle of new york you well, know because you have this feeling right like where you feel like money will solve all your problems if you're someone who's who's someone who's respected and has a great you know all of this other stuff that all your problems go away and the truth is that it's not the case for them in this film and in fact 
it even puts them in more danger the fact that they are now in this financial bracket mm-hmm. mo money mo problems mo pro- <laughs> <laughs> so Saverstein and uh and uh guy end up essentially kidnapping her out of this doctor's office and take her back home. And this is where she's now going to go into labor. So, you know, we're going to, all these fucking weird old people are now coming into the house. Oh, we're your friends, Rosemary. Oh, I hate it so much. Mm-hmm. We're your friends, Rosemary. Uh, guy is like, you know, oh, everything's going to be okay. The doctor's there trying to, you know, sedate her and, Rosemary ends up giving birth without anyone, you know, without like remembering anything. Uh, she wakes up and she's all alone except for Mary Louise, who is one of the neighbors that, you know, that has now invaded her life. <laughs> yeah, so she like, she's one of uh, Minnie's friends, right? Yes, who also lives in the building. Yeah. Um, and is also obviously part of this cult. Um, but I mean, you know, who, more people that we a part of the cult. At this yeah, point. like more people that we saw that were that were in you know that were at the New Year's party were there. Doctor Hill ends ooh, up Doctor Hill party. Doc, yeah, Doctor Hill ends up not being uh, part of the cult, but he still ends up being like a giant like garbage bag. Fuck him too, though. <laughs> yeah, he can get he. I'll he spray the chopper on him too. <laughs> he can catch these hands. <laughs> Um, so, you know, Rosemary's looking for the baby now. A guy, before she passed out again, guy tells her it's a boy. Uh, but by the time she wakes up again, it's Aberstein and guy that are coming in. They tell her that the baby is dead. Those um, fucks. She doesn't believe them at all. And they're still, and they're actually having her pump breast milk, you know, even That's though, that, right. even though and, the child is supposedly asks, dead. She asked um, Mary Louise, right? Yeah, it's like obviously these people are fucking lying. Mm-hmm. Like it could not be more obvious. Uh Rosemary's not taking any of the pills that they're giving her. Um, you know, is tricking them into looking away so that she doesn't end up <laughs> taking them. Um and uh, you know, once she like kind of just like, all right, well, I'm gonna figure out where my kid is because she ends up hearing crying coming from one of the other uh, units in the building right and i think guy says that someone moved in and they just had a baby and that she's right worry about crying and, and, and i think even rosemary questions whether or not you know whether or not like it is that is the case whether it is that they have a baby in another room and then she's just like you know again because of the all the stuff that she's been going through and and just how everything is so it's like a theater like they're all basically doing a play <laughs> and she's like the mark that has to be that has to like not understand like you know what it is that they've got all got planned for her um she wakes up either in the middle of the night or the day uh goes through that closet that has been completely remodeled which you know in the beginning of the movie there was that giant cabinet that was blocking the door um mm-hmm. In my opinion, I think the old woman who lived there before Rosemary uh, moved in, I think, had become disillusioned with the cult and was ready to leave and ended up mm-hmm. getting killed. Um, mm. I mean, she died, like in, a... she died in the hospital, but, but you know, when Rosemary first goes inside of that apartment building at the very beginning of the movie, one of the things that she reads is a piece of paper where she talks about how I can't associate myself. Uh, with this essentially like the woman saying that she's not going to associate herself with whatever it is that's happening 
Well, you know what's really interesting, though, is aside from aside from uh, uh, what's her name, Terry, Terry's death, mm-hmm. where she like gets thrown off the fucking like roof of the apartment building. I mean, it, if you're summoning, if your deaths are, are if death is required to summon um, Satan in this movie, like if we're going by hereditary rules, it's interesting that this cult isn't actively trying to kill people. It's like it's getting them out of the way, because otherwise, the actor that that guy, why not kill him? You know. Instead, they blinded him, something he can't, you know, something essential for him to become, be an actor, uh, just to get him out of the way for Guy. Hutch, same thing. They put him in a coma, didn't actually try to kill him until he kind of succumbed three months later. Mm-hmm. So it's either like, it's one of those things where it's like, they're not, aside from Terry, they weren't actively trying to kill these folks. Well, honestly, who knows, right? Like, yeah. these people are, are capable of anything. And I think one of the reasons why that that that, you know, dresser was there separating the two rooms is because obviously there's not a wall like those rooms are only separated by a partition mm-hmm. and i think this movie also very much like tells you just visually that the cultists are getting inside of this apartment building through that hole in the wall in in mm-hmm. the closet because there's also the scene where rosemary like right before she ended up giving birth where she like ends up locking the door of her apartment but while she's like on the phone trying to call her friend in the darkness like two strangers end up walking that's right you, know, you do see them run the by. Room, which to me is like the scariest scene in this fucking movie <laughs> it's it's like seeing the creepy naked guy in the hereditary yeah, like the it's creep, just the smiling naked guy is probably one of the most terrifying jump scares. <laughs> um, so she she goes through the you know through that hole in the wall, uh, through the door to get inside the Cassavetes, uh room, and that's where she sees you know the thing that my cousin would tell me about all the time, which is the bassinet, the the, the black bassinet with the upside down cross. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it it really does turn into almost a comedy because. Mary, what is it, Louise? Mary Louise? Lara Louise. Lara Louise. Laura, sorry, Laura Louise. Yeah, yeah. Laura Louise is basically like a raging bitch, like who like is annoying to everyone. Um, <laughs> like everyone's done with her shit. All the other, all the yeah, like she seems like she's like the millhouse of the Satan cult. <laughs> <laughs> like she's just there to get punked by everyone. <laughs> yeah, like they, she's, ha- they have this the- really offensive like Japanese like caricature guy who's there to take pictures yeah which you know that guy totally reminded me of a sweet fucking jesus uh, a few years ago i watched breakfast at tiffany's and i actually think it's a pretty good movie until I think mickey rooney comes in mickey rooney as like the asian photographer who talks with an offensive accent like I feel like the this, big ass buck teeth. Yeah, I feel like this is kind of just like a you know, it's a reference to that. Um, but it's just like obviously all these like Satanists from a, from around the world that are there, and they're all like not surprised at all by the fact that Rosemary's like holding a giant like butcher knife in her. Hand. I was like, this is it. She's gonna get revenge. All these fucks are gonna get it. She's gonna go on a stabbing party over here, man. I was really Tarantino was, did not direct this movie. Shut up! I would have loved Quinn Tarantino's Rosemary's Baby. You shut your goddamn mouth. She, it's fucking Uma Thurman walks in with the katana. 
Oh, but no, Javi doesn't get the magic ending he wants. Instead, we get the very just fucking my my making my head scream as I scream into the void. (laughs) Yes, they're all like chanting "Hail Satan." Um, You know, their their son that was born, his name is Adrian, just like uh, Mercado. Uh, So, so Roman's father's name is Adrian Mercado. So. You know, this child's name is also Adrian. So you don't know if the Satan that they're talking about is actual Satan from hell, which they they say it is, or if it's just like a descendant of Adrian, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's just like that. That's it's hard to tell. It could be real. It may not be. Guy's a total fucking piece of garbage because he can't even be he can't even look at her. Like, mm-hmm. he is so embarrassed, like, someone who got caught doing something he shouldn't do. And I think the most insulting part of all of this is, while well, Rosemary, like, after Rosemary sees the monstrous baby in the crib, who they never show in the movie, right? Like, they, all they do is where they talk about, like, his eyes, is she ends up having a flashback to that devil ghoul that she saw in her dream. Mm-hmm. So, like, you never actually see what the baby looks like at all. But it, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. You never actually see. You, she says he's got, he's got fucked up eyes. Mm-hmm. To which they respond, "Well, it's his father's eyes." Yeah, implying that it's Satan and not Guy. Right, and and so Guy, like you know, after she's kind of like sat with all of this and she's drinking the tea that was given to her uh, by many, like, do you Guy think it comes... was laced or do you think it was actual real tea? I think it's just real tea because at, at this, this point, at this point, like yeah, because at this point she's been she's seen the baby, and then they also make it clear, like you know, or at least Roman does that they want Rosemary to take care of this baby, mm-hmm. like they think it's appropriate for her to be the one that nurtures this child, and like he even says, he goes, Laura, Louise, and and Minnie are too old, you know, it needs to be his mother, and. <laughs> Laura Louise just sitting there, quote unquote, rocking the baby, shaking the shit out of him. Jesus Christ. It's like, it's like, you know what? <laughs> it's like, if you really wanted to kill the son of Satan, you probably didn't even have to do anything except like watch Laura Louise just give it like, you know, this shaking, <laughs> just, just kill the child by shaking it to death. My God. <laughs> Laura Louise, this is the third Antichrist this year you've killed, <laughs> you dumb bitch. <laughs> Which, you know, maybe that's the gag. Like, maybe they did have a, a devil baby that was born from, uh, you know, <laughs> from, born from Terry that... <laughs> that poor Louise murdered. <laughs> you never know, right? Uh, but I think the part about this that's most offensive, and I really do think, even though she doesn't, like, hit Guy in the nuts or kill him, I think something that's almost as, like, just satisfying is that guy really fucking believed Wait, that it was going to be... Do you just put a nut shot in killing a dude on the same plane? Like, yeah. the same level of severity? Yeah, if you don't have a dick, there's no point in living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right, fine. <laughs> so, guy actually comes up to her and tells her, oh, well, they promised they weren't going to hurt you, and they haven't, and now... You know, they had their devil child and, you know, this is the worst thing that ever happened to you, but it wasn't my baby, so I don't really care about it. And hey, guess what? We can go move to LA now. I'm going to become a movie actor now and we're going to have more kids. Like, just the actual thought that Guy, like, like the, the, the idea that Guy thought 
that it was going to be okay. Like after she gave birth to this child, like for her to be able to move on and have a normal life. Like what the fuck was this? Like, like get your head out of your own fucking ass, you piece of shit. Yeah. Like even the cultists who want to control what Rosemary's doing, like even they just want her to take care of her child. Like literally there is no character in this movie. That's more deplorable than guy. (laughs) He really thought that they were going to like, he was going to, that she was going to just be, she was going to have a life with him no matter what. And it's so fucking infuriating. It's very unsatisfying that he doesn't get his. So I don't know. Maybe the old spit in his face. I mean, he spits in his face and it pretty like that pretty much spells it. As I like, mean, if it you was know, acid like it's over. Spit that melted his face off, that would have been rad. But <laughs> and then if like, he got, <laughs> but it's in a courthouse, and like Batman, like jumps over the banister. <laughs> Batman's just sitting in the front row, full guard. That's right. I just tied this all the way back to Batman forever. <laughs> Suck it! <laughs> oh god but that's the movie right so um yeah. it ends with rosemary rocking her child not trying to kill him take notes laura louise you bitch <laughs> and yeah fade to black and that is rosemary's baby so yeah. i guess final thoughts on the film angel would you like to go first or should i go first yeah final for me final thoughts in the film is i do like this film um I liked it in a different way than I thought I was going to. It doesn't have it to me. It's not like exorcist. I feel like exorcist is one of those movies that I can go back to over and over and over again. And it's still like, you know, it's fun. It's a horror film. It's all of this stuff as again, now that I'm someone who's experienced the experience of going through a pregnancy with my wife and childbirth and, and her going through childbirth and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's, it's too harsh for me. So it's not a movie that I want to come back and re- and revisit too much. You can if you'd like to. I think it's a good movie. I think it's worth watching. Even my wife, who was just like, I never wanted to watch it for years because I thought it was too scary. She's like, wasn't as scary as I thought. She was like, but definitely interesting. Um, and it's also just like, you know, again, to her, it was a movie that's just overwhelmingly sad because of just all the stuff that's happening, right? Um I think this movie is it's it's also a bit of a play on the possession movie like there's no like Rosemary is essentially possessed by the child that's inside of her and it's a good the loss of control in this film is kind of a good allegory for the fact that when you do have a child even if your child is a normal non-demon person (laughs) the idea is that you are now not living life for yourself you are living it completely to take care of someone who's not and, so don't uh, have kids, y'all. They will take over your lives no matter what. <laughs> Just like demons. <laughs> but uh, definitely a movie worth watching. I think if anyone here hasn't, if you're listening to this episode, either hasn't seen it or is, you know, interested in maybe giving it a, 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 a watch, even though we've spoiled it all to hell. Um, yeah, sure. It's a movie that I like. It's just not a movie that I'm going to go back to as many times as I go to some of these other horror films I like. Well, it's like Hereditary. I think if you watch it a couple times, you'll probably pick up something new every time. I agree with um, that. And, mm-hmm. you know, how Hereditary is very much watching. It's about paying attention to the background, what's going on. 
um, not necessarily in the forefront of a scene, but what's going on behind what's the subtext, right? I think very much this film is in much like that. I want, in much like how Hereditary was about the family dynamic and the problem of loss, this film is just like, it's interesting because they're using horror as a backdrop to tell the story of like an abused woman's experience, the isolation that goes behind it. And kind of, it takes a step on more grand scale to focus on what's going on on the macro level, right? Talking about the patriarchy and talking about bringing up the issue of gaslighting, women's rights, whether it's reproductive or just health in general, you know? Um, Like one of the things I, I I thought it was really good, the conversation that I had with my wife where one of the things she talks about where she goes, you know what this movie makes me think about a lot? She goes, is the fact that there's a lot of employers out there who can control uh, whether or not you you can get uh, birth control and stuff like mm-hmm. that like like employer health care has control over what women can do um just you know in general it's like women's reproductive you know either resources are more scarce than than stuff that like ed pills for men and stuff like that like yes like we are absolutely in a patriarchy and i you know it's it's this movie I think is going to hit so different if you're a woman that's watching it. Mm -hmm. It's just, there's just no way around it. And, and, you know, we can only talk about it from the perspective that we're coming from. And I did appreciate at least doing this film because it gave me and my wife the opportunity to talk about, to just talk about stuff, you know, and (laughs) like, like, you know, like phrase that a little bit better. Well, like, no, like, I mean, like just honestly, like have like a really deep conversation on a movie that we watched, which I haven't done that in years and that's I appreciate the that this movie at least gave us kind of the ability to do that and this show has as well. Hey babe, what do you want to talk about? I don't know, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I imagine that conversation went. Um ultimately though, do I like this movie? <sighs> yes, I like this movie like you said though. It's not a movie I'm going to come back to anytime soon. And a big reason for that is my personal feelings towards the director. And it's absolutely, it's one of those things where it's like, yes, Roman Polanski is a very talented filmmaker. Yes. Roman Polanski is a great fucking storyteller, but at the end of the day, and yes, he's been through some shit, you know, like I can't imagine what it's like to have your, you know, your, your child, lose your child and wife on the same night in the most like terrifying way possible. Right. That being said, the, the other stories, the, the, the rape allegations, like just mm-hmm. the whole escaping the country to France to avoid being tried for rape. Like the, he hasn't lived in the States in fucking years. Right. Yeah. Because no, of like that. He, he never came back and he is a, like, he is a great a piece of shit. And it's like, I don't like, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, I try at one point do us as people that take in art, um, do we separate the art from the artist? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like to a certain, I find myself struggling with that all the time where I'm just like, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to separate the art from the artist so I can enjoy the art. But at the same time, it's like, well, no, I don't also don't want to support this guy. Even if he did make good art. 
And I think that's, you know, a, a fucking microcosm what we're going through with council culture right now in 2020, right? Where it's like, yeah, it's cool to say that shit when you are... It, it's easy to say that when it's not someone you like. Or I'm, it, but once it's something you like and something you care about, that's what makes it difficult. So it's one of those things where it's like, I feel that I do, while I like the story, I can't say I like this movie. Okay. For that, just for that. It's super weird. I have very complicated feelings when it comes I to I think this that's movie. fair. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's fair, and I think both of our opinions are fair on this. So I would not argue with that at all. We are both right. (laughs) (laughs) So, guys, that's it for it right now. We want to make an announcement. Thanks to friend of the show, Jose, for uh, suggesting an idea that we started off as a joke in our group chat. Now it's kind of becoming a mini-series. He suggested we watch Tammy and the T-Rex. So if you guys have Shudder, it is on there. Um, Tammy and the T-Rex is a cult movie from the 1990s and it has a young r.i.p paul walker it has denise richards it has some other guy (laughs) i've never actually seen this movie so this will be a first time for me i have never seen it either but we also you know so people don't say we never take uh we never take fan uh, requests, so fuck y'all. We're doing a fan request. We do it every once in a while. Yeah, we'll, we'll throw them a bone. This show's for <laughs> me, not for you. But we're gonna do, we're gonna do uh, Tammy the T Rex, and because Angel and I have really liked uh, like packaging some uh, like the way we did with Hereditary and uh, what's it called uh, Rosemary's Baby, we're also gonna be reviewing the week after. Jurassic Park 1. All right. Which this will be our second time venturing into the series because in the early days of the podcast, we did Jurassic Park 3. (laughs) Man, love that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you even liked it when we reviewed it like last time. So (laughs) I'm pretty sure I said I liked it. I need to go back. But yeah, so we're. No, I'm pretty sure you actually defended it against (laughs) me, who was a lot more negative on it. Well, yeah, that goes without saying. So, for those of you who can't wait for us to discuss Jurassic Park 1, go back and listen to that show in our archive. (laughs) So, I'm ready. We've been watching a lot of highbrow shit. I'm ready to finally, like, shove my nose into some schlocky discussion. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We've been watching some highbrow stuff. Yeah, I like how we jump from like ultra serious topics. Like we did, we did the uh, the Moonlight admission, and then we jumped right into Batman Forever. We do like two like serious elevated horror films, and we're gonna jump to schlock again. Fuck yeah, dude! I live for the schlock. That's the only reason I'm still on the show. Oh, I can't wait to schlock it up with James Bond again in the fall. Oh, I can't wait to schlock all over your face. <laughs> you can suck my schlock. All right, I guess we'll talk to you guys next time on the show. Uh, Keep interacting with us on social media, and please leave reviews for the show so we can get a bigger awareness out. Um, And we'll talk to you guys next week. Tell your friends. Tell your friends about us. We love you guys. Bye.